to express that which is within you with sincerity, in the clearest and most perfect manner, would seem the ultimate goal of art. Concise artistic credo comes from Gabriel Faure. He was writing to fellow composer Florent Schmidt. Clarity, perfection, those were always Faurean ideals, and very French ideals, you might say. But at the time Faure wrote his first piano quartet between the years 1876 and 79, other ideas were beginning to hold sway. 1876 was also the year of the complete first performance of Wagner's Ring Cycle. Wagner fever was beginning to spread through Europe and to the New World. Faure was quite capable of being moved by Wagner. There's a letter from Bayreuth that he wrote in 1878, while he was making what was becoming the almost mandatory Wagner pilgrimage. Faure advised a friend to bring lots of handkerchiefs. He admired Wagner Yet he was also quite capable of an ironic distance, even of affectionate mockery. Sometime later, he wrote the deliciously irreverent Souvenir de Bayreuth. It really speaks for itself. So here's an intriguing paradox. Faure was famous as a polite, civilised gentleman, not outwardly a big, attention-seeking personality. And yet he was one of the few composers who seemed to be able to enjoy Wagner and yet keep his balance absolutely. No artistic crisis followed his visit to Bayreuth, nor did he feel any compulsion to take sides one way or the other. Modestly, Imperturbably, Faure stayed absolutely true to his own course. the beginning of Faure's first piano quartet. We have the first theme on stern unison strings and strong chords for the piano. It's quite arresting. Yet Faure marks it only forte, a single F, and quite soon a more supple 
character. A subtle lyrical exchange begins to develop between the piano and the strings, like the kind of elegant dance that allowed physical contact between the dancers, but always within the spirit of decorum. Yes, there is a bit of bravura display for the piano at the climax, but actually that's not very typical of this work. Despite the fact that Faure wrote the first piano quartet for himself to play, he doesn't actually give himself much time in the spotlight. And what follows that opening is actually much more characteristic. The strings develop that initially stern opening theme in more fluent polyphony, while the piano adds a rippling accompaniment and offers occasional brief, tactful comments. times when Faure seems almost unkind to himself as a pianist. Those sumptuous rippling accompaniments that he produces are often quite hard to play, yet for most of that passage the piano is emphatically not intended to draw attention to himself. In fact, often the piano's task is to make all this writing sound easy, something effortless like the play of an ornamental fountain. As we turn towards the second subject of this first movement, we again find instances of Faure's quiet individuality. In big first movement structures like this, after Beethoven, the contrast between the first and second themes is essential to the musical drama. It reminds me of William Blake's famous remark that without contraries there is no progression. But that's not how it works for Faure, however. At the end of the passage we've just heard, with its shared urbane melodic discussion of the first theme, the music gradually melts into the second subject, which is initiated by the viola. This second theme is different enough not to sound simply like more of the same, but is it argument by contraries? Absolutely not.
the end of that extract, did you notice the return of the original Stern first theme on the strings and then on the piano? If you didn't, there's no need to give yourself a hard time. It's so beautifully dovetailed, the transition is so apparently effortless, the sublime continuity so enjoyable, that it's easy just to enjoy being carried along by the flow of ideas, to enjoy the decorous discussion of these musical thoughts by the players. We may not notice the structural features of this music, but that doesn't mean they're not important. There's never any sense that this music wanders, and that's partly to do with Foray's remarkable formal mastery. His engineering, you might say, is firm, but it's plastic enough to make sure that there's never any sense of the frame being slackened. At the same time, however, he never draws attention to the architecture in itself. And that sense goes right through to the return of the stern first theme at the end of this first movement, where it comes back in the major key. Now, the turn to the major at the end of a minor key first movement in a large-scale work, whether it's for chamber ensemble or orchestra, is usually a big dramatic event, a coup de théâtre, perhaps. There's a splendid example of that at the first movement of a symphony premiered in Paris a decade after Fauré's quartet, César Franck's Symphony in D minor. Everything is tense, stormy, definitely minor key until we reach the blazing final chord, D major, light shines sensationally in darkness. César Franck's dazzling, dramatic turn to the major at the end of the first movement of his symphony couldn't be much less like what Fauré does at the end of the first movement of his first piano quartet. Initially, the cello hints at the rhythm of the original first theme, then it returns fully in the major key on the violin and the cello. The piano resumes his original role of adding chords off the beat, but now it's pianissimo. Still, this isn't a sudden dramatic hush. It's much more like a natural, elegant winding down. If the first theme was originally a touch severe, it has now been completely calmed. Civilised, you might say. Thus, Fauré brings us delicately to the end of a wonderfully balanced first movement, full of refined dialogue and formal clarity, always, as he put it, in the most perfect manner. This turns to a delicious playfulness in the second movement, the scherzo. The old, original, classical meaning of the word scherzo, a joke, seemed long forgotten in the years after Beethoven, especially after the titanic dance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yet here, Fauré revives it, apparently without a second thought. The main idea is like the rapid running of a clear brook. We hear it first on the piano, then on the strings. But notice, while on the piano it's in rapid threes, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, triplets, the strings presented in a slightly more sedate twos, duplets, one, two, one, two, one, two.
I like the way the piano seems to have learned from the strings at the end of that extract. For a moment, it takes over their duple rhythm. That kind of refined exchange is very characteristic of this scherzo. The jokes here are more like suave Gallic witticisms, the kind of thing you could imagine exchanged round a table during or after a beautifully prepared and carefully presented meal. The main scherzo section is rounded off very neatly. Then comes a change in the topic of conversation for the central trio section. Yet despite that formal close, the flow continues the brook ripples on. It's the slow third movement, however, that's the gem of this quartet. This time, the character is definitely elegiac. There are echoes here of Foray's famous Requiem, parts of which were written around the same time as this music. mentioned the fact that that was penned around the same time as Foray was writing parts of the Requiem. In fact, there's more than a passing resemblance at the end of that extract to a phrase from the Libera May in the Requiem. Emotion in Foray is always contained does not mean that it isn't deeply felt. You can sense that in the lamenting theme that follows the initial idea. We have finely wrought string polyphony surrounding the melodic line on the violin, while the piano has more of those accompanying figures that should never sound as hard to play as they really are.
beautifully. Foray sets up the slow movement's central climax. And there is a moment where Foray does seem to allow emotion to spill out. There's a rare marking of molto forte, very loud. This soon fades delicately into the recapitulation. The Liberame phrase rises again, and this time through more of Foray's exquisite ripplings on the piano. Strong feelings, intense, refined poetry, yet everything held by the kind of formal trellis that's strong enough to support, but never rigid enough to inhibit. This really is a remarkable achievement, especially in an age when composers either strove for Dionysian abandonment a la Wagner, or struggled to keep things within an expanded classical framework like Brahms. Foray never advertises his achievement. That would have been distasteful to him. Apart from the Requiem and his strangely untheatrical opera Penelope, for I always preferred intimate mediums, songs, individual piano pieces, chamber music, all mediums in which Listian exhibition tends to be de trop, out of place. But his absolute mastery within these forms, the clarity, the perfection he achieves, these are outstanding. Talking about the second piano quartet, the American composer Aaron Copland wrote that its beauty is truly classic if we define classicism as intensity on a background of calm. I think Foray would have liked that. And we can sense this paradoxical achievement in the finale of the first piano quartet. At a time when many composers seemed incapable of writing really fast music, you don't find much of it, for instance, in Wagner or Brahms, Foray leaps, bounds, springs forward. You can feel the music's muscles, sense the mounting excitement, yet it's also deft. And certainly we can also feel that background of calm. The form is unshakable, even when Foray momentarily disrupts his forward-coursing three in a bar with two bars of four beats. There's another striking paradoxical quality in this music. Even though we're back in the minor key, the C minor of the first movement and that dark, elegiac slow movement, the prevailing feeling is still one of exhilaration, perhaps even joy. You sense that particularly as the movement turns into the lovely, soaring second theme.
Perhaps towards the end of that passage, we get a sense of how absorbing Foray found some of Wagner's lush harmonic thinking. Yet it doesn't feel Wagnerian. As I've said before, it's remarkable how Foray managed to keep his head and sail his own course at a time of wild experimentation, heated controversy and intoxicated waywardness. But that's just as remarkable today. We seem to take it for granted these days that an artist must break boundaries, push the envelope, and above all, innovate. You could say that's the categorical imperative in modern art. But Foray shows that you can be original, profoundly original, without storming barricades or striving to shock. It reminds me of the old motto of the Roman poet Horace, Ars est celare artem, the art is to conceal the art. Nobody embodies that principle better than Gabriel Foray. <laughs> 